0: You're listening to Christ is King, all of Him, and all of life, from Rivertown Church in Brattleboro, Vermont. This podcast is part of our ongoing mission to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all peoples. For more information, visit RivertownChurch.org. May the Lord bless you in the hearing of His Word. Today we're going to be looking at Christ being King over our service And I think it'll be a needful reminder of the grace of God in giving us the high privilege and calling to be his servants, to be his laborers in his field. So I would invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans in chapter 12. We're going to be pulling some principles from this chapter that I think will help us as we consider what it looks like for Christ to be king over our service but I want to start in another place that you don't need to turn to just to reference it in first Corinthians 15:58, Paul gives us this verse therefore my beloved brothers be steadfast immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that your labor is not in vain. The foundation of all Christian ministry is the response of a regenerate soul to the victorious, conquering love of God in the work and person of Jesus Christ. Paul says before he says this verse at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, just for context, he says at the beginning of the chapter in verse 14, that if Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Everything we're doing right now would be an absolute vanity if Jesus Christ was not alive and seated at the right hand of the Father. But he is. And we just sang of it and we're reminded of it. We need to be reminded of it daily, that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Yet, quite frankly, This does not always describe us. This does not always the characteristics that we would describe ourselves as being people that always consider the labor that we're engaged with on behalf of Christ to not be in vain. Quite the opposite. Often we feel dejected. Often we feel frustrated. Often we feel defeated even. We often feel as though we are contending both with sin and a myriad of obstacles to our service. We are contending with failure in a real sense of inadequacy. We are contending with ourselves, we're contending with the devil, we're contending with principalities and powers, Ephesians 6 tells us, things unseen that we are battling against. And quite often, our lived experience in laboring for Jesus Christ can be one of frustration. Can be one where we think to ourselves, does this really matter? Is this all in vain? Paul himself, if you follow closely his own ministry throughout the New Testament, says often that I was hoping not to have labored in vain. At the beginning of his ministry, he was very concerned that he was preaching in vain, and he went up to Jerusalem in Acts 15 to get sort of a a reassurance, if you will, or an affirmation that God was in his ministry in leading him. Uh, after almost 15 years of service, so we as a people need to know from God that our labor is not in vain, and of course He says as much. Just quickly, 1 Corinthians 15:58 reminds us of three important characteristics that describe the Christian servant. First is steadfastness. Second is unmovable. And third is always abounding. Before we pray, I just wanna look at these quickly. Steadfastness is to be settled. Unmovable is to be firmly persistent. And always abounding is to exceed in quality and quantity over and above a set measure. This is to describe the service of God's people. Does it describe you this morning? Or do you feel often that this is not me, that I'm not settled, that I'm not persistent? And that I'm not exceeding in the labor that God's given me over and abundant my measure. But if that's not you this morning, then I pray that Romans 12, as it did for me, will help you and assist you in being a more faithful servant of Jesus Christ. So let's pray and we'll jump into the text. So Father God, we thank you for the precious privilege of gathering as your people freely. But Lord, we don't come to your table without some sort of weight. We don't come without some sort of trial, without some sort of suffering, without some sort of pain. And perhaps we've had a victorious week. Praise you for that. Perhaps we've had a defeated week. However we come to you, your truth is the same, and you are the same. You remain unchanged yesterday, today, and forevermore. Let us come to your word with hungry hearts, an open heart, an open mind. Speak to us as only the Spirit of God can, through the revealed truth of Scripture, and accomplish your good pleasure in and through us. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Romans 12 is a loaded chapter. We're not going to cover the whole thing today. We're going to be looking really at the first six or seven verses as our main point of emphasis. And in Romans 12, we would Be amiss if we don't first set the context for why Paul is saying what he's saying In Romans 12, and we'll do that in a moment, but I'd like to read just through the text that we'll be covering And in verse 1 of Romans 12, many of us will be familiar with it Paul says, I appeal to you therefore brothers By the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, and the one who contributes in generosity, and the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Paul is reminding the Roman church of a few things that he says actually in the prior chapter in Romans 11 is uh, (laughs) thankfully not what we're covering today because we'd be here a long time. Uh, But in Romans 11, at the very end of the chapter, Paul is uh, revealing sort of the mystery of God's sovereign dealings with Israel. And in that entire chapter, as he brings it to a close before he launches into his exhortation that we'll be looking at today, he says a few things uh, in a meta sense regarding how God deals with his people, not just with chosen Israel, but with his chosen people at large. And I think these principles are helpful as we set the context for what we'll be looking at. And the first thing we see right from Romans chapter 11 in verse 29 is that the gifts and the calling of God is irrevocable. The gifts and the calling of God is irrevocable. Secondly, we see that God has shut all in disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. Right there in verse 31, and then secondly, in verse 35, God is not looking for repayment for His grace, but He does seek for our lives to glorify Him forever. These three things, I think, set a foundational bedrock for us in understanding Romans 12, because first of all, God is not apologetic for choosing you, and God is not changing His mind tomorrow. God has called you, if you are a true child of of His, and He has given you gifts, and He has given you a ministry, and He is not taking it away. Now, you can certainly disqualify yourself, and that's a whole other message, but presuming that we are seeking to faithfully discharge our ministries, take courage, brothers and sisters, that God is not sorry for choosing you, and He's actually not even uh, really disappointed in you albeit that you are pursuing holiness in the fear of God, he is not going to remove his hand of blessing from you because his gifts and calling, he does not change. And sometimes we feel as though God, you know, had a plan A for our lives, and now he's got a plan B. And certainly there's doors that may be shut to us because of decisions we make. And certainly, decisions have consequences, particularly sinful decisions. But we need to have a much higher view of God than being deterred by the failings of men. Hence, Romans 11. Secondly, we need to realize that God's foundational dealings with us as his chosen people is not on merit, but on mercy. It's the gospel 101. God deals with us not on merit, but on mercy. He has called you by mercy. He has made it such that we are completely dependent on mercy. And he's not dealing with us thirdly on the basis of our works bearing our own righteousness, but rather that our entire lives would give him glory. This is the foundation of Romans 12, not that we're seeking to somehow pay God back for the grace he's given, because we never can, but that we would simply give ourselves to God and say, Lord let my entire life from here to eternity glorify you and i think these simple truths from romans 11 set the table for us as we jump into romans 12 because in romans 12 paul is going to say four things that for the christian in service to jesus christ we need to know if we're going to faithfully walk for the long haul committed to christ the four things that we need to know first of all in Verse 1, we need to give ourselves to God. We need to give ourselves to God. That's why he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is an awesome truth, because unfortunately, many in service to Christ get it backwards. They are seeking to do things for God, before they've ever given themselves to God. We don't do anything for God before we give ourselves to God. It says in Acts 13, when Paul was beginning his missionary journeys before that, that in the church of Antioch, there was prophets and teachers. Among them was Saul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. And it says there in Acts 13 that they were ministering to the Lord in fasting. And from that place, God called them out, set them apart, and commission them onto a missionary journey. And what that illustrates for us is that all ministry starts first, from ministering to the Lord before we minister for the Lord. If We don't have a relationship with Christ, and if we're not waiting on Him, ministering to Him in worship, then we go out to do the work of the Lord, and we are quickly defeated. We are quickly discouraged. We are quickly disqualified. But Paul sets the order right in commanding Christian ministry to start first by giving ourselves to God as the foundation before we do anything for God. And maybe you know from painful experience that you tried to do things for God before you gave yourself to God. It doesn't end well. It doesn't go well. God requires that we give ourselves to Him. Well, what does this look like, this giving of ourselves to God? Well, Paul, first of all, appeals to them. He beseeches them. This word has the idea of coming alongside someone and kind of speaking into their ear. It's a very intimate word. It's a word of helping and assisting and encouraging. And sometimes we need that, don't we? We need someone in our lives to come alongside us, not push us so much, but just kind of throw their arm around us and say, hey, let's keep going. Let's pursue this together. And this is the idea that Paul is communicating to his brothers and sisters, and he says, through the mercy of God, give yourself your body as a living sacrifice. This is an amazing thing, because God is actually concerned about our body. Now, in this context, in that world against the powers of Gnosticism that were prevalent um, in that day, it was very common to think of your body as completely divorced from all things spiritual, and that there was uh, a divide between really the secular and the sacred, between the physical and the spiritual. And, and, and God actually, through scripture, reverses that and says, No, there's a combination of that which is spiritual working its way out through the physical. And that the Word of God needs to be incarnated in human flesh, hence, the Son of God taking on the form of a man and coming down to our level. And we, in the same way, take spiritual truth and flesh it out through our bodies. And our bodies matter, and God wants our bodies. But bodies here doesn't speak merely of physical flesh. It speaks of the entire person. It's got a holistic view in mind. It's your body, mind, and soul. It's the whole package. Sometimes we give God part of ourselves. Sometimes we we keep a part to ourselves. And this creates a tension in the Christian life that's unhelpful and unholy. God says, give all of me to me. First of all, God owns you anyway. The believer who yields himself entirely to God for his pleasure isn't giving God anything he doesn't already have, but rather they get the very one that their body was created for. We're not giving God anything he doesn't already own. We're simply receiving the benefit in our bodies of the one who owns us. We're the ones that (laughs) really benefit from giving God our body. He already owns it. When we give ourselves to God entirely, It's the soundest act you can do for your well-being. The best decision you can make with your life is to give God your body. No matter what else you do, you can be the healthiest person on the planet. If God does not have your body, you are sick. God seeks you. He created you. He wants you. And God seeks what he made to bring him glory. And he will satisfy the heart and soul of the one who gives himself, all of himself, to God. So this is the foundation of Christian service, that we give our bodies to God. How do we give it as a living sacrifice? This is a really it's kind of an oxymoron in many ways. How does a sacrifice remain alive? Sacrifice is meant to be killed. And in a real sense, this speaks of the nature of our Christian service and our dedication in that it's an ongoing sacrifice. The altar is to be perpetually lit. We're to be perpetually giving ourselves afresh to God. I find great encouragement in that because there's been many times in my life where I've given myself to God only to take myself right off that altar and say, no, I want part of me back. We're going to do things my way. We're going to do things according to my plan. And God says, no, this is a perpetual sacrifice to the end of your days, that you would be a living sacrifice. You know, it's in some senses much easier to die for Christ than it is to live for Christ, is it not? It'd be easier just to kind of have a a final stand, a moment in which all of the trials of life come to an end. And if you've been walking with the Lord for a long time, there's moments where you just wish God would take you. You'd be like, man, it'd just be easier if like somebody would just end it in the name of Christ. But it's much harder to live christ but god gives us the grace for it and that's why this living sacrifice is perpetual it's ongoing but not only that it's holy and acceptable to god this is really important because we ought not to be doing anything for god that's not first holy and acceptable to god this kind of dedication this kind of service is what god seeks not only that it's what's pleasing to god and man we can do all kinds of things in god's name but if we don't give ourselves to God, it's not pleasing worship. It's not true worship. God reminds us of the need to have a perpetual altar in our lives upon which we willingly give ourselves time and again and again and again because we need the reminder. Also, he says, this is your spiritual worship. This is such a mouthful because what spiritual worship really speaks of is literally, it's a loaded term, and I'm going to do my best to break it down for us. It simply means reasonable, you might have in your Bible. That's a very helpful translation. It's reasonable. It's, it's, you could say, literally logical. That's all true. But it's even more than that. It's a sacrifice that is pleasing to God because its logic has been informed by Scripture, say it one more time. It's a sacrifice that is pleasing to God because its logic, its intellect, its will, its mind, has been informed by Scripture. That's what makes it logical. It's obedient worship. It's not lip service. And I think this is awesome because you will never truly read and understand the Word of God and the work of Christ and arrive at a more well-reasoned position than to say, I'm going to give my whole person to God. See, the devil will cause you to reason in a different way, won't he? And if in, in your Christian life you've arrived through reason, quote unquote, at a different decision than giving yourself to God, then you've reasoned wrongly. And you haven't reasoned biblically. Isaiah 118 reminds us to come, let us reason together, says the Lord. If you're reasoning through the scriptures, in doing that which Scripture clearly communicates, in hearing clearly from the Lord, then the most logical thing you can do in obedience to the truth is to give yourself to God. There is no other thing that Scripture will tell you to do. And I find that so amazingly helpful because sometimes we really get locked up. We, we wonder what the will of God is. And if you truly read your Bible, you will arrive time and time and time again at this one point of emphasis, give yourself to God. When you know not anything else to do, give yourself to God. When you know exactly what to do, give yourself to God. There will never be a better logic. There will never be a better informed decision than this. And this is what Paul is getting at when he says, this is your spiritual worship. It's a worship not purely emotional and not purely rational. It's the combination of both as being informed by the word of truth. And when we give ourselves to God, It is really the first decision in a spiritual hierarchy of decisions that have been informed by the truth and been reasoned out in the will and brought into submission. I think this is just so awesome that our spirituality is not an ethereal thing out there in the clouds, but a living incarnation of the truth, reasoned out in the mind and worked out in the body. This is true spiritual worship. And friends, God's service is not unreasonable. But the most reasonable thing you can give yourself to so this is what paul is aiming at in our first introduction to romans 12 is give yourself to god it can't be any clearer it can't be any more helpful it can't be any more true and appropriate for the christian servant to do this as his first thing he ever does and if we don't do this then we disqualify ourselves from really doing anything else I can do all that I want. Paul says in Romans, uh, 1 Corinthians 13 that I can give my body to be burned. I can be a martyr. I can give my money to the poor. I can do all these things, but if I don't have love, I have nothing. And this first decision that the Christian servant must make is a decision of love in response to the great truths of God that we would give ourselves to God. So essential, so needful. And perhaps this morning you are reminded of where you find yourself maybe discouraged and tired and weak and defeated, and and you say, I don't know what to do. Well, friend, give yourself to God. Give yourself to God, and God will take you from there. Secondly, he says in verse two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable, and perfect. So we not only give ourselves to God, but secondly, we are renewed in our mind, renewed in our mind. This is such an amazing word, this word of renewal. But first, there's three words that we need to understand, conformed, transformed, and renewed. These things are very different from each other. Paul tells us not to be conformed. Well, conformed there speaks of a Greek word that I can't pronounce, so I'll give you the English translation. It speaks of the English word for schematic. It's where the Greek comes from. And it speaks of the world's design. So Paul says, don't follow the schematic of the world. The world has a form. The world has a mold. And it speaks of the external pressure, the weight of all this force pushing you into a mold. Now, I don't know about you, but do you feel that in your life? Do you feel the weight of the world seeking to mold you inform you in its design, in its schematic? Paul says, do not be... Squeezed into this mold, but conversely, and this is how you combat it: be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This word "transform" is where we get our English equivalent of "metamorphosis." It's only used three times in the entire New Testament. It speaks of Jesus's transfiguration. Second Corinthians three eighteen, Paul says that we are transformed uh, in the same image from glory to glory. And then here, the only three times it's used. It's the, it's the word for "metamorphosis." It speaks of the internal pressure pushing out combating the external pressure we all know that if there's too much external pressure on a thing it's going to crush it but if there's enough internal pressure to combat that external pressure it's really how boats float it's the same kind of idea God says that there is the Holy Spirit alive in us exerting an, an inward pressure to combat the outward pressure of conformity see when the church in the Christian conforms to the world he immediately has lost the battle. He has given up ground. He has not really put himself in a position to continue to faithfully discharge his ministry, but rather we need to be transformed. We need actual metamorphosis. We need to be changed people. The greatest weapon we have in our arsenal is actual change by the grace of God. See, all the world can offer is a mold. You're just a clone of a clone of a clone. You're just everybody else. And you might think you're autonomous and think you're independent and think you're doing things your own way, but you're just like your neighbor. You're just like your friend. You're just like your coworker. God says, no, I have a much higher thing in view. I have complete transformation in view. I have a change from the inside out. But this is going to be done by the renewal of the mind. And this word renewal speaks literally of renovation. And I think this is so helpful because in our lives, God is going to renovate you. You know, when we start to serve Jesus, things go really well for a time. We have a view of what that's going to look like. I don't know about you, but that's so many idealistic views of what it meant to serve Christ when I started. And the Lord throughout the last 20 years of my life has been taking a sledgehammer to so many of the things that I thought serving him looked like. Now, I could bemoan that, and I could complain about that, but the reality is this is exactly what's supposed to happen. God is renovating. You know, our, in our home, we, our kids often watch these TV shows uh, like Chip and Johanna Gaines. We all know the, the show, and all these really cool, like they, they buy this really cheap beater house, and it's like falling apart, and they take a couple through it, and they're like, this is what it could look like. And, you know, the woman is always like, oh, I see it. And the guy's like, I don't see nothing. Like, I don't believe you. Like, you can't bring this thing back to life. And typical of us to just, you know, not really buy into it. And finally the wife ends up convincing the man, yeah, we should do this, take the plunge. You know, they they know what they're doing. And, you know, four months later, the entire thing has been restored. And I love the scene in every show where they always show the demolition. Because that's all I could do. I mean, I can't build anything, but I can rip stuff apart. So if you invite me to demo your house, I'm all in. But if you invite me to build anything, talk to Elijah. Because I'm not the guy. But if you give me a sledgehammer, I can rip down walls and I can break cabinets. And, and that's just fun. I mean, that's what guys like to do. I mean, give me a sledgehammer, let me go to town. I remember as a kid, uh, my mother had this organ that was just this atrocity of a thing. And had to move it outside. We couldn't move it outside. So she locked us in the sunroom and gave us crowbars and hammers and said go to town it was the best day of my childhood we were there for like six hours just ripping this thing to shreds and uh that's the renovation that god will do in our minds god is going to literally take the two by four the sledgehammer the hammer of his will and of his word and change our thinking the, the reason is is because we have walls in our hearts and minds that are blocking the view of God's glory and grace from being seen. We have structures and ways of thinking that need to be torn down. And when we first start to serve Jesus, we can mistakenly think that, like, we've arrived. God has, like, given me a ministry, like, I must be there. And then you quickly realize that you are so not there, but God's faithful, and God is going to rip down all kinds of walls in your life and he's going to pull down sheet rock and he's going to make a mess before things get better. That is all part of serving Jesus Christ and maybe you're in that season of pruning where that Jesus told his disciples would happen that if you're bearing fruit you're gonna be pruned. There's gonna be some things that as you bear fruit other things are gonna to have to die. Other things are gonna to have to be lopped off and God is faithful in all of these things but it, but it hurts and it's messy, and it's painful, and things that we thought God was gonna do that we had our hopes set on don't come to fruition, and that's not God's fault. That's just God being God. We need our minds renewed. We need true renovation and change from the inside out. So Paul is looking at this and saying, not only do we need to present ourselves to God, but we need to be renewed in our thinking. And as we look at this, This is how we grow in real biblical discernment for the purpose of knowing the will of God. That's why he says that by testing in verse 3 or verse 2, you may discern what is the will of God. That means by proving you may discern. So in this renewal process, there will be testing. There will be trials. There will be all kinds of demo work that is going to happen that will not be pleasant. But through it, you will begin to discern, you will begin to understand the will of God in your life. And I love that because we always want the will at the front end. We always want the understanding at the front end. But God often gives it at the back end. Where he comes through the house and he just tears stuff apart. And then at the end of it, we're like, wow, how did that get done? How does that house look like that now? And our lives should look the same. If you've been walking with the Lord for a long time, you should see in your life the pattern of God's hand sovereignly breaking things for his glory so that he can build things back better than they were. And you should be able to look at your life and say, you know, when I started in this race, this house looked like this, this temple, this body, my ways of thinking, my habits, my actions, and and now God in his mercy through the process of continued renewal, I look like that. And i got so much more work to do, so much more that needs to be happened in me and through me. And that's why Paul says we are renewed day by day, always being changed from glory to glory. Note the lack of neutrality about this. This is important. If we don't allow, if we resist or fight the Spirit of God transforming our lives, notice this, we will inevitably be conformed. Because there's only two forces at work in the world. The forces of evil and the forces of God's Holy Spirit. And if we're not working with God, inevitably, if we persist in that place, we could find ourselves quickly working against God. And we can quickly find ourselves being conformed. Because you can't resist the conformity of the world if you're not resisting internally. If you're not really being changed from the inside out, the the world's pressures are too great. They will crush you. They will mold you and they will break you. But rather, we must fight back by letting the Lord have his way. We have to fight by letting God have his way. If we give up the fight, we will simply be conformed like 100,000 other people. We will be another church that's conformed to the world instead of being transformed. And the Lord does not have this for us, He doesn't leave us in the dark either regarding his will, but he rather desires that we would be able to demonstrate with our lives that we are progressing towards the goal of the upward call of God and Jesus. Does your life demonstrate that you're fighting back? Does your life demonstrate that you're being transformed, that you're being molded? Does your life have the marks of renovation inside of it? And can you see clearer now than you did 10 years ago regarding the will of God? in your life. I pray you can. I pray that the Lord has allowed the tool of pruning in your life to remove that which obstructed your view. Again, as I already mentioned, 2 Corinthians 3:18 says, "But we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another." And for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Let the Spirit have His way in you. We do this by fellowship. We do this by the Word of God. We do this by prayer. Uh, This isn't a mystical thing as much as it's a very practical thing. If you are putting yourselves in the proper means of grace, God will be faithful to you. You can't read your Bible, pray, go to church all the time, and not be renovated unless you're just living a lie. God will have His way, and God is good in so doing. Thirdly... We must think with sound judgment. We must give ourselves to God. We must be renewed in our thinking. And as a consequence of this inward renewal, what will be produced is a sound reason, a a biblical judgment. And this is really neat because he says, the end of verse 2, that we may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And he says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. You know, I don't imagine there's anybody here that has a high view of themselves improperly, right? Nobody has that problem. Everybody has that problem. I hate to break it to you. I have that problem. We think wrongly about ourselves. And we think wrongly about ourselves mainly because we think wrongly about God. Proverbs chapter 4 tells us that so as a man thinks, so he is. So our thinking needs to be changed, right? We've already looked at this a little bit. But I love how Paul starts this little section when he says, by the grace given to me. I love that. Paul knew what he was talking about. Not only that, you can imagine this guy before he was Paul, Saul in Acts chapter 9 on his way to Damascus, riding his proverbial high horse that Jesus literally knocked him off of on his way to doing what he thought was the will of God. And that is such an apt description of many Christians in their service to Jesus. We are going full bore, riding the high horse of pride, doing great things for God until one day we wake up and find ourselves on our face. And God has removed us off of our spiritual high horse. And he has humbled us and he has brought us through broken things. He has revealed to us that though we had great zeal, we had no love. And though we had great passion, we had no perspective and though we had great promise we were proud and God humbles us like he did Paul and Paul much longer after that incident says this that by the grace given to me meaning learned firsthand i say to all of you no one's excluded do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think how i need to hear this because it's so true we all need to realize that we are prone to think automatically with an inflated view of who we really are. This is quite frankly how we're born into the world with a sin nature and the Lord of course is faithful to to do this work of renovation and this is one of the sure marks of growth and grace when we can think rightly and honestly about ourselves before God. This is one of a true mark of maturity when we know we're progressing in the Christian life when we can really say uh, that we both understand who God is and we understand our place before God. I think that's why Isaiah 6, uh, when Isaiah is before the Lord and he just says, woe is me, is the foundation point of his ministry. When he realizes he has reached the bottom, he's as low as he can get unless God kills him. He says, woe is me. All the excuses have been removed, all the inflated view, whatever it was. And God, of course, does a work of renovation in Isaiah in touching his profane lips. And then Isaiah, all he can say in response is, here am I, send me. Send me. And this is the place God wants us. He wants us with a right judgment of ourselves. The problem is, is there's two ditches on this straight road. There's the ditch of pride, and then there's a ditch of pride on the other side, which simply is always putting myself down. I'm always kind of like abasing myself needlessly. I always have this pessimistic view that I can't do that because, or we always have these like Moses built-in excuses why we can't obey God. That's another form of pride. So these two ditches can really keep us on the sidelines from being used by the Lord. What we need is to think rightly. Sometimes you'll think that humility is thinking badly about yourself. We are to be poor in spirit. We are to understand the gravity. That in our flesh, there is no good thing. We are to understand that. We're to apprehend that. We're to believe that. And if you don't believe it, God will make sure you do. Because you live long enough and you realize there really is nothing good in this flesh. It's just always bent to evil. And we realize this in our lived experience. So God is faithful to cause us not just to put ourselves down so that we can excuse ourselves from serving God and not to put ourselves up so that we're higher than we ought to be, but that we would put ourselves in the right place to be used of the Lord, to think rightly about ourselves in light, he says, of the measure of faith that God has assigned. You know, one of the challenges in serving Christ is that uh, we have to come to the place where we realize that as an individual Christian, I'm not the whole package. I don't have it all. Sometimes we can think that we are like God's gift to the world. Uh, and, and though we would never articulate that, we certainly can think that. We can think like, man, I'm the most gifted. i got such potential. i got to just the, the road is paved. God is going to use me. I'm going to be the next D.L. Moody. And it's not necessarily wrong to have aspirations. Uh, I mean, you need to have some aspiration for the Lord wanting to use you. I mean, if you just... If you don't want the Lord to use you at all, then you're in the wrong room. Be saved. Repent. But, I mean, all of us, I'm presuming, want to be used of the Lord. And I remember as a child just reading the stories of these great men of the faith and, like, I want to be like that. Praise God for that. You should want that. But just think rightly about it. You may want to be D.L. Moody, but you might not have his gifting. You may want to be Billy Graham, but you might not have his calling, but you have something. You certainly have something, and you probably have more than you realize. And God has given you something that he's not taking back. And God's called you in a way that he's not revoking. And he expects you to walk in it. And I think it's awesome that Paul says we need a right understanding both of ourselves and of the portion of faith that God has given to us. You know, often we think that the whole church, if they simply were like us, everything would be right. If everyone was just like me, man, this church would be thriving. How silly that is, right? Thank God everything is not like me. We'd be in real trouble. But this is what Paul is getting at, that we would have a sound judgment. Because pride is the quickest way to get put on the shelf by God. And the independent spirit is antithetical to being poor in spirit. And it will actually cause us to live in a state of spiritual blindness. And many Christians must mature to think rightly about themselves. And a a mature believer will understand the power of the grace of God in and through him, doing what they cannot do themselves. And they will believe God and act courageously in faith. What does right thinking look like? It's thinking that applies faith in what the Word of God teaches him about himself and about God and appropriates that truth about God and does it. That is right thinking. Any other the kind of thinking is skewed. Any are the kind of thinking that doesn't put God in his proper place and me in my proper place is skewed thinking. And it's a wall that will have to be renovated. And we have lots of those in our lives and lots of those in our thinking where God is going to come in and renovate Uh, and renew us because he wants us to think rightly first about him, about his word, about his truth, to appropriate that rightly and to live it rightly. And this is a process of change. This is a process of maturity. This is a process of growth and grace. So Paul says that we need to be uh, renewed and we need to be uh, thinking soundly. And then fourthly, we need to use our gifts and not neglect them. Second Timothy chapter 1 verses 5 through 7 Paul writes to Timothy his final letter before he's martyred and he tells Timothy something that's over the years been very helpful to me and he says I am reminded of your sincere faith a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice and now I am sure dwells in you as well and he says for this reason I remind you to fan into a flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power in love and self-control. This is so helpful as we think through what does it look like to actually serve the Lord to use the gifts He's given. Now, these gifts are gifts of grace. Uh, sometimes we get the idea that our spiritual gift is like a personality test or like it's my predisposition. Uh, the things I'm good at, and sometimes those things blend together for sure. There's proclivities that God has hardwired in us that uh, do help and assist us in our calling, but the gifts that God gives his people are gifts of grace, not of personality. God made you. He made you who you are, but these are gifts given by the Holy Spirit, and I think what's amazing about spiritual gifts is that when we obsess over gifts, we usually don't know what we have. But when we are fixated on grace, the gifts become brought to the surface. When you are in love with the grace of God, and when you live in the grace of God, that will reveal your spiritual gift. But if you fixate on what is my gift, what is my gift, what is my gift, how do I got to serve? That's a valid question, but if it's your obsession, uh, you will miss the grace of God, and you will always be wondering, how can I serve him? But if you live in the grace of God, God will reveal and bring to the surface through the plethora of his people in your life, speaking and and just getting opportunity to serve the Lord, those gifts will come to the surface. But let us be fixated on his grace. And in so doing, God will reveal our gifts. And Paul is reminding Timothy that he has not given you a spirit of fear. He's not given you a spirit of doubt, but of power and love and self-control. This word self-control could be rendered sound thinking or a sound mind. So God expects of us by the Holy Spirit he's given us not to be living in a place of fear, always wondering if I can serve the Lord. God has qualified you by grace. He's given you gifts of grace and Paul says a very simple statement in verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Let us use them. Pretty straightforward. Nothing could be more practical. If you have Uh, a burning desire to be used of the Lord, and and you have a sense that God has gifted you in a way, well, then do it. Do it. Don't be afraid of failure. You're going to fail. I mean, I'm so thankful for the people that have given me opportunity to exercise gifts so poorly so that I could grow, and that's continuing to happen to this present day, that there are other people that are Uh, further along than you, that that assist you, that give you opportunity to serve. Now, everything you put your hand to for Christ may not be like your lane. You know, I mean, you think of a track meet. I used to run track, probably many of you did, and, you know, you have your certain races that you're kind of wired for and good at and competitive in, and, you know, at the end of the day, the Christian life can sort of be like a track meet where we think of ourselves like I can only run the 400, and if I'm not serving in the 400, and if I'm not running in the 400, then I can't do anything else. And God may require you to run 800. God may require you to run a mile. And you might be better gifted for the 400, but sometimes a runner is a runner. A servant is a servant. And God says, do this for a season. It might not be your gifting, but you're a servant. And servants do what their master commands. And in times in our lives, God will put in front of us things that we do not like. Many things that we do not like, that we're not... Uh, maybe even really gifted for, and I'm not suggesting that you should stay there. Uh, there's certainly wisdom to be found. It's part of the renewing of the mind that we realize what our lanes are and that we get in the right lane, but occasionally in the process of growth, we will find ourselves running races and serving the Lord in ways that we did not expect, that may not be long term, but there are seasons of training, and if you can run the 800 well, you can probably run the 400 better. And that's kind of what God does in our training process is, you know, He's shaping and molding us and and He's given us gifts and we just simply need to use them. But the danger is is that we neglect them out of fear, out of doubt, out of pride, out of an unwillingness to be used of the Lord to put ourselves at risk of embarrassment or whatever it might be, whatever the reason is, it can become sin for us if we don't use the gifts God's given. And I, I gotta be honest with you, Neglecting your spiritual gift is a sure way to frustrate yourself. It's to frustrate yourself in the Christian life. To not walk out uh, and use your gifts. The diversity of gifts just in this room alone are multifaceted and diverse. And God has given each one of you probably more than one spiritual gift to be used in his service, both in his body and in the world. And so it's an amazing thing. And Paul says, use these gifts. And he goes through the list of some of them. He says a prophecy, serving, teaching, ex- exhortation, contributes, generosity. You know, in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. You can find other lists in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians twelve, um, Ephesians four. Uh, you can have different, you know, samplings, if you will, of of some of the ways that God has given gifts to His people. But ultimately, all of these things serve us as people in ministry. And I love how Ephesians 4 reminds us that, you know, the gifts that he's given the church through apostles and prophets and uh, um, pastors and teachers and evangelists are for the purpose of equipping the saints for the work of ministry. So if, if you have in your, in your mind that ministry is like only what's happening right now, or only what happens in the four walls of this church, then Again, renovation needs to happen in our thinking. God needs to rip some walls down because that is certainly not the case. This is actually all for you to be equipped, us to be equipped, so that we can go and do the work of the ministry. So again, all these things as we close, we're to give ourselves to God, be renewed in our mind, to think rightly about God and ourselves, and simply to use your gifts. Don't neglect them. And in these simple ways from Romans chapter 4, I think we can find great help in continuing to be faithful servants of Jesus Christ. Because again, the big idea is 1 Corinthians 15, 58, that we would be a people that when God looks at our lives and when others look at our lives, they can say of us that we are steadfast, we are settled in our calling, we are immovable. Paul says in Ephesians 20 that these things don't move me, for I consider my life as of no value to myself, but that I might fulfill the ministry given to me by Christ, and that we would be abounding in the work of the Lord. And I like how John Piper describes that. He says of that particular word, he says, we should just be doing a lot of it. Do a lot of ministry. I love that. Like, just be free to do it. We just suffocate ourselves sometimes, not wanting to do the wrong thing. And God just says, be free. Serve me. Do ministry. All of us should be engaged in ministry. If you're not engaged in ministry, get engaged in ministry. Ask the Lord, how can I use the gifts God's given me? And then submit that to the authorities in the church that you're a part of, the pastors in your congregation, and say, put me to use. And God will be faithful. Don't buck the system. They might give you something that you don't like. There's an old story I heard of a church in California where a guy... Big church, thousands of people, complained about the parking situation. Parking was a debacle every Sunday. People coming and going, and nothing was organized. And he had been coming for a while and finally went up to some of the assistant pastors in that church and said, you know, the parking really is not good, and you guys need to do something about this. And they looked at him and said, welcome to the ministry. You do something about it. He was all ruffled and offended. And he was like, oh, gosh, like how could they say that to me? And he thought about it went back, and, well, who became the guy that did parking. Twenty years later, he's a pastor leading a church. And this is how God starts and God will finish if you give yourself to God. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your precious people. We thank you for your promises that are sure in Jesus. We thank you for the grace that you have mightily bestowed on each of us to not only begin a good work, but to complete it. Thank you that you give us assurance of this grace and that you have called us to this good work. Since the foundation of the world, we are your workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Let us put our hand and our hearts to them. Let us not look back. Let us renounce the things behind us, pressing on towards the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Give us the grace to do this, to do it faithfully, Do the renovation that needs to happen in our thinking. And we praise you, Jesus, for the privilege of serving you and being called your own. In Jesus' name, amen.